Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on April 4, 2018, focusing on what Treasury should be doing today in light of federal tax reform. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, a PwC tax partner and our services leader, Krishnan Chandrasekhar, a PwC tax partner focusing on transfer pricing issues, Rebecca Lee, a PwC tax partner focusing on international tax and financial transactions issues, and Eric Cohen, a PwC advisory partner focusing on treasury consulting. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists of case studies with particular emphasis on pooling, interest deductibility, and capital structure issues. Take a listen. All right. Why don't we um, why don't we move over into the case studies, Eric? I'm going to start with you because our first item here goes into um, talking about pooling. That was one of the things that people said were one of the high things. So maybe just give us a perspective from corporate treasury around their interest in pooling and what the implications are of tax reform, and then we can jump into getting perspectives from others. Ken, Ken there's, there's two huge questions <laughs> floating out there from our corporate treasurers. Oh. And not to lead the witness, yeah. Rebecca, but it's com coming to you. But basically, can the U.S participate in a cash pool without an adverse tax consequence is number one. And then the second, as part of that question, is can the U.S. be a pool header? So two questions out there that there's a lot of dialogue, there's a lot of, okay, depends. Is, so let's try to break that down. We don't like that it depends, <laughs> but that's kind of the answer. No, I mean, the, the old school rule was because the U.S. would have made certain representations about permanently reinvesting offshore certain amounts of its earnings, you just would not have the U.S. participate in your cash pool structure. And you might have certain structural or strategic loans that you would make back to the U.S., but otherwise the U.S.'s cash and the foreign cash would be relatively segregated. Even pre-tax reform, we saw some companies starting to explore the notion of if I had great technology and perfect transparency and strong tracking, could I have the U.S., for example, lend into the pool but not pull out from the pool so that I didn't create uh, a U.S. tax inclusion? And sometimes companies would say the risk around that is too high. I'm not willing to sort of rely upon my technology and my tracking uh, to contribute in that way. Well, now things are completely different. So I may actually have a higher rate in my European Treasury Co. than I pay in the U.S., and that may have certain drivers around whether that's appealing to me or not. We've heard folks, and no one actually pulled the trigger on this, but there's a lot of discussion of how many of these uh, activities do I actually make a so-called check-the-box election and repatriate the entirety of the operations back to the U.S. from a tax perspective, in which case it's all part of the U.S. group tax currently, and I can move cash fairly freely. Um, on the flip side, and an interesting incentive set up about tax reform is those base erosion tests that we, we talked about and that base erosion anti-avoidance tax, um, there are some provisions of that that are managed by having a U.S. Treasury Center, someone that uses, say, a mark-to-market method of accounting for things like its derivatives. So we're starting to see almost, um, I like the fact that people are saying they're exploring options because there's a variety of different paths here. There is absolutely a path to have the U.S. participate in some greater fashion than it had participated previously in the cash pool. It I puts think the other thing that helps, Rebecca, didn't mean to interrupt there, but 
you know, to continue from the, the transfer pricing points we made earlier, a, a tension has historically, especially for U.S. parent groups, a tension around these has often been around the management of the pool mm -hmm. and the treasury function being sometimes divided up between the U.S. and the offshore treasury center. And, and again, the substance question that's, that's all over in Europe and, and in a number of jurisdictions, it, is, it would be easier to manage if one could kind of bring the activity of the Treasury Center back as well. It helps the, tra the transfer pricing story as well. And well, and, and if we're being candid, I think a lot of our treasurers who are watching this are saying, actually, most of my people sit in my headquarters in, you know, pick your location. Yeah. But there are some limitations on this. We still have an interest limitation in the U.S. and one that may be applied on a, on a foreign corporation by foreign corporation basis. So you actually do have to look at from a pooling standpoint, where are you paying your interest? And is the interest deduction fully taken? There is some planning that one would undertake because of this global intangibles tax and the rate applied to that. So there's a few different valves here, but I would say if it's appealing to your treasury function, this is an absolutely great place to do a little bit of modeling and make sure that you're in the room while your ta tax colleagues are looking at more fundamental restructurings in their group. Yeah, just on that point of modeling, and it's almost where tax and treasury need to collaborate. Point I've made on several of these webcasts are, in a post-reform world, it is virtually impossible to make any sort of cross-border decisions like the types you're contemplating without running a model that talks about the numbers and takes into account um, guilty, takes into account feet, takes into account FDII, looks at um, interest deductibility. All those components, you may get very, very counterintuitive answers to what you think might be a normal planning exercise. That's so, exactly. yeah, so anybody out there on the Treasury side that's looking to go down this, this is the reason Treasury and tax need to be working together because those numbers need to be run and they require a tax technical calculation to sort of understand the application of them. That's right. That's right. And I think that theme carries over when we start talking about notional pooling as well. Um, no, <laughs> this is the other question we get all the time. <laughs> Do, do is there a recommendation around notional pooling versus physical pooling? Does tax reform change this decision? Um, and I'm going to now paint all of my advisory colleagues with a single brush and say, my advisory colleagues love notional pooling. It is a frequent recommendation. It has nothing to do with tax, <laughs> U.S. or foreign. Uh, oftentimes, from an operational standpoint, it's easier to have everything pooled uh, on a notional basis rather than running one single center to pool all the cash. Um, one of the things that folks have done outside of the tax area is particularly if you have multiple pools or multiple groupings, doing the baseline of narrowing down your vendor selection to only a handful of banks, uh, trying to get yourself in a situation where you're paying lower bank fees overall. And sometimes that has been something that has led folks to continue consider either notional pooling or we flagged it on the prior, prior slide pay on behalf of, receive on behalf of, so that someone is acting as an agent for multiple members of the group and then using either their internal record keeping or the bank's record keeping to push those items out to various participants. Um, there have always been tax tensions, both U.S. and non-U.S., around notional pooling. And whether that's, are these things that get collapsed down into being recharacterized as intercompany loans, um, would non-U.S. jurisdictions, especially if you have large depositors in one side of your structure and chronic borrowers on the other, would uh, jurisdictions can create an intercompany loan there because that's really where the capital is flowing to impose either substantive tax, withholding tax. None of those risks are new. But what is new, uh, both whether you have the U.S. participate or whether you continue to do this among CFCs, is going to be the impact of the interest deduction 
I may very much want an interest deduction within my group that right now I might not get depending on what my notional pooling arrangement is and how that is priced. Um, on the flip side, I may not want related party interest expense or I may want it very much. Um, we care now a great deal about the timing of income, the timing of expense, how it affects all of our calculations. Um, and so if you've got other good economic incentives for reconsidering whether you're in physical pooling and going to notional or vice versa, this is a time to explore it. And, and frankly, one of the reasons this is so top of mind for people is for folks who just worked through their cash toll charge calculation with respect to cash and non-cash positions, um, notional pools gave what people might have expected to be counterintuitive results, um, or at least the, the risk of them. Um, in a notional pooling structure where you have individual balances with a bank, I think folks worried a little bit about, you know, are those actual independent relationships with the bank respected as separate, or are they really just intercompany lending? Um, and this takes us back to the question of uh, sort of pre and post-tax returns. My thumbnail with this always is that notional pooling seems like it may be more expensive because you're asking the bank to do more for you than what you would get in physical pooling and, and sort of that spectrum of how many of the services or services you do in-house with your personnel and your technology versus how much are you outsourcing to a bank partner. Um, and that oftentimes is what's the driver for our treasury colleagues is it's a conversation not about sort of how are the form of the legal agreement structured. It's who is taking responsibility for foreign currency translation and foreign currency risk? Who in the structure is actually going through and doing the interest calculation and allocation on a per account basis? And this is candidly where I think te technology could be a little bit transformative. And Eric, there's been kind of pushback from banks yeah. as well, right? And yes. there's an external uh, consideration so, so, here as well. So right? two, two things to, com to come off that. First, on notional pooling has already been a under a little pressure, mainly because of some of the European regulations, Basel III, around capital requirements associated with your, your pool balances and how those have to be grossed up versus on inability to net those. So banks, some banks have kind of pivoted from providing those services or more so been very selective on which clients they offer the notional pooling offering. The other point is on the, if you switch over to physical pooling, that's where that technology point is great because that involves a more administration, a more in-house technology is required to do that. Um, and there's, there's intercompany loans that are required from each participant with the pool header. And that's another set of um, burdensome resource requirements on a treasury function. So all of these come into play in that analysis. All right, so moving over into maybe a little bit more of a study, a case study around capital structure scenario and bringing some of these elements around tax deductibility of interest and the like into play. You want to take this one? I will, and I'm going to give this one just a, a light touch. Um, this is actually a slide from our March 7th webcast around the interest limitation. And from that webcast, we learned from the folks who participated that approximately 45% of them expected to be subject to this interest deductibility limitation in some fashion, uh, which is a pretty substantial amount. The exercise here and this example is all about illustrating you may be better off or worse off borrowing in the U.S. or pushing down debt and borrowing in your local country. And that's going to depend on a whole host of factors. We've run a very simplified example here where we're comparing our limitation in the U.S. versus 
what would happen with the earnings that we have offshore because you're looking at what the entity's earnings before you know taxes and depreciation and amortization so you may end up with different limitations at different entities um, you'll also if we if we zoom out a little bit from just the mechanics of the limitation you may have limit differences from a foreign currency standpoint you may have differences from a rate or marketability standpoint so you may be able to borrow more cheaply in your euro environments or in pound or in yen as an example rather than you can borrow in the u.s and you'd want to really model all that out to figure out which one's better or worse this was a really easy snapshot though because in a lot of structures right now the u.s parent borrowing and doing these serial loans all across the globe is sort of their standard model uh, and this illustrates with just a relatively simplified example that there's actually potentially a benefit to being a little bit more disaggregated in terms of where you put your borrowing. Um, I hate to tie everything back to tracking and management, but oftentimes one of the big challenges from a corporate treasurer is you're managing controllers in a wide variety of jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. And once you go from having all of your banking relationships in one place or in one or two places in your structure to decentralizing it and pushing more borrowings out into more entities subject to uh, local controllers having to track those and manage the market relationships and the payments, you're tapping, you're maybe swapping a tax cost or a tax risk for an operational risk. Yeah, and not to sort of overemphasize this, but the reason you had that borrowing at the top U.S. level was a 35% deduction that can yeah. be parceled out to other places. So that whole dynamic has changed, which is why that disaggregation may make sense in some cases. Yeah, and of course I would say the reason you had that debt in the U.S. is not just for tax. Oftentimes you had the deepest capital markets you could access, you got the best pricing, it made sense from an overall how you look at that 35% deduction. Well, that's cool too. All right, so Eric, uh, I'm gonna come over to you and maybe you can talk about some of the work you're actually seeing out there where Treasury's starting to dig into some of these areas and the types of things they're doing. So, so I wanna piggyback right off what Rebecca was talking about because that's a, a real life use case right now going on where companies are exploring um, cheaper debt in other, in other jur jurisdictions, particularly in Europe, and there's potential for some very significant interest savings by issuing um, debt in Europe. And the key question will be, well, if you do issue that debt in Europe, what, do you need to convert it then to USD or are you gonna use it in Euros um, in your overseas business? So that's a lot of questions. And then if you do convert it to USD, then there's a hedging element to it. And then you also have to figure out, all right, how am I gonna get that back? Which legal entities is it gonna pass pass through. So there's a lot of questions going on, but the bottom line is there's a potential for cheaper um, debt issuance overseas if you need the cash for the right specific circumstances in a company. Uh, another interesting one going on right now is for a, another company that's actually wants to bring cash back, um, but it uh, has to flow through different entities and different functional currencies, and there's hedging, there's currency exposure throughout. So some treasury accounting, technical accounting experts are required to figure out, well, what is the impact and what hedges need to be put in place? What's the hedge effectiveness component of that? And how do we you know, tackle some of those technical issues that come up with just the currency risk associated with a repatriation? And a note on that, just make sure whatever story you're telling from a hedge accounting standpoint for ASC 815 or your IFRS equivalent is not inconsistent 
with your tax story around what your hedges are and how they are treated. This is like blocking and tackling 101 around hedges, but we still see a lot of times the technical accounting folks aren't talking to the tax folks and they'll make statements in their hedge IDs which could be better coordinated with what you would put in your tax hedging identification policy. And, and a third case study we're seeing right now is, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, is a, a company that wants to improve their cash forecasting. They know they have some real opportunities here. They know in the past they have not been great at this exercise, but to be able to set up a program where you can understand the inflows and outflows going through each legal entities is a big effort. For, for some organizations. So really getting your arms around that so you can then accurately predict, you know, what is your one week, three week, three month, six month, one year view of cash flows is critical for the, the tax component so you could do the right, come up with the right strategies. Yeah, so just a few areas you're starting to already dig in. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.